0: Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus, chapter 20. Last week, we had the privilege of looking at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. We looked at the issue of running the race with endurance, and I think we're going to end up making a couple copies of that sermon and leaving them on the back table in a CD format so that That can really guide our year, our 2015 year. Our goal every year, every day, every second is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. But for us specifically as a church, my heart and my prayer is that this year we would seriously consider the hindrances and the encumbrances around us and fight To fix our eyes on Jesus, to do what the author of Hebrews told us to do, to lay aside, to be laying aside every encumbrance, every sin that so easily entangles us. But if I could sum up all of those hindrances, all of the encumbrances, all of the sin, if I could sum it up into one idea, into one thought, into one word, the word would be idolatry. What do we need to lay aside? Why do we get stuck Looking to other things to satisfy us. What does that look like and what is it called? It's called idolatry biblically. We saw this even in Philippians during our time studying Philippians. You remember at the end of Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about a people whose God was their belly. They turned the one true God and the worship of him into a God of their own appetites and cravings. Literally their bellies became their idols. Now, when I say the word idol or idolatry, normally what comes to mind, what image would come to your mind is a little golden figurine or a little Buddha or a wooden statue that's been carved and somebody bows down to it. And definitely that certainly is idolatry. And despite what we might think, that is a form of idolatry that is happening even as we speak. Um, The biggest uh, Buddhist temple in the United States of America, is right down the street on Roscoe, right next to Grace Community Church. And in that temple, they have images that they have displayed and they worship them. So the form of idolatry that normally pops up when we think of idols and idolatry absolutely is happening even to this day. But you might say, okay, I don't have any golden image in my house. I don't have any statue that I bow down to. I don't really struggle with idolatry, and I would say maybe you don't struggle with that form of idolatry, but we all struggle with idolatry. Over the next few weeks, I want to spend some time on a little mini-series through this issue of idolatry. The Bible is replete with the image of idolatry, with the understanding that that is the fight we will always have. Every morning, every afternoon, every evening, we are fighting to worship God or fighting to worship anything other than him. In, in the Bible, idolatry takes on a form that is much more heinous than simply bowing down to a statue. This morning, I want to start this series just by giving an introduction. That's why I think in your bulletins, this is just called an introduction to idolatry. We're going to look at some passages. We're going to look all over the Bible together We're going to hear from a lot of godly men who have gone before us on this issue to help us understand. So this will be a little bit different. Normally we'll just stick to one specific passage and dive into it. That's what we'll be doing in the future as we look at the idol of money, the idol of love, the idol of fame and power, the idol of glory, things like that. We'll look at specific passages that detail that and we'll dive in deep to those. But this morning we're going to look at a broad overview and just three questions to frame our introduction to idolatry would go as follows. Number one, what is idolatry biblically? What is idolatry? How do we define idolatry biblically? Number two, why do we worship other gods? Why is idolatry an issue for us today? Why do we worship other gods? Why do we worship idols? Why do we have idols? And number three, what happens when we do worship other gods? So what is idolatry? How do we define it? What does it look like biblically? Number two, why do we worship other gods? And number three, what happens when we worship other gods? What is the outcome of our idolatry? So, number one, what is idolatry? How can we define it? Richard Keyes helps us in this by saying this. As modern people, we usually think of an idol as an animal or a human figure made out of stone or wood. We see it as an object for religious devotion or magical power for pre-modern people who might prostrate themselves on the ground before it. If we have updated the idea at all, we might use idolatry to describe someone's obsessional preoccupations with money or of an idol like Elvis Presley. We have, in effect, distanced ourselves from the whole idea of idolatry by pushing it out to the extreme cultural and psychological margins of life. The distance has produced two problems. Namely, first, we misunderstand the most comprehensive description of the shape of unbelief used by the writers of the Bible. I want to repeat that sentence. We misunderstand the most comprehensive description. So idolatry is the most comprehensive description of the shape of unbelief used by the writers of the Bible. That's a big statement. I believe it's a true statement. If we as Christians today see idolatry only as life's margins, we will be ill equipped to use this powerful, critical tool as the apostles and prophets did to understand and challenge the surrounding world. The second problem is similar to the first, but even more important. If we do not understand the nature of idolatry, we will not be able to recognize or guard against it in our own lives and communities. Overlooking idolatry makes us blind toward our own problems. Idols are not just on pagan altars, but in well-educated hearts and minds. The Apostle Paul associates the dynamics of human greed, lust, craving, and coveting with idolatry. The Bible does not allow us to marginalize idolatry to the fringes of life. All too often, it is found on the center stage. Idolatry is front and center in our minds, in our hearts, and it is the most comprehensive picture that the Old Testament and New Testament writers use to describe a heart that is struggling to believe in Jesus Christ. You should be in Exodus chapter 20. This will begin our helpful introduction to what idolatry really is, truly is. You are familiar with this section of scripture. It's the Ten Commandments. Verse 1, then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am that God. I am the Lord. I am your God. So therefore, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So the first commandment is you shall have No other gods before me. Literally, you shall have no other gods before my face, in front of my face. What God is saying is there can be no other competing allegiances. There can be no other competing affections. There can be no other objects of worship. There can be no other objects of devotion in the place of God or in addition to God. We cannot remove God from the throne and put something else in his place. And we also cannot put something else next to him and say, I'll worship both of you equally. That is idolatry. No other God in front of my face, before me, or even beside me, alongside of me, with me, together with me. That is not allowed. Os Guinness says this, idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible. And one of the most powerful spiritual and intellectual concepts in the believer's arsenal Yet, for Christians today, it is one of the least meaningful notions and is surrounded with ironies. Perhaps this is why many evangelicals are ignorant of the idols in their own lives. Contemporary evangelicals are little better at recognizing and resisting idols than modern secular people are. There can be no believing communities without an unswerving eye to the detection and destruction of idols. No believing communities, if you allow idols to pop up and remain there. That's why in the Old Testament, you constantly see a picture of smash the idols, tear down the high places, get rid of every single other foreign God and worship God and God alone, the one true God. Exodus 20 is really one of the first places that we see this huge issue of having no other gods, no other devotions, no other affections. But the New Testament speaks of it as well, of idolatry. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In verses 1 really through 13, Paul is talking about the Old Testament Israelites. And he's talking about how the Jews were idolaters at heart. You remember at Mount Sinai, they worshipped the golden calf. They were involved in sexual immorality and God struck them down. Verse 7, Paul says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. That word play is a euphemism for the orgy that they were involved in. Don't be like them. Don't be involved in idolatry. Don't be an immoral people who are craving evil things. Verse 6, as they also crave. Don't be like that. And then down in verse 14, therefore, because of everything that he has said, my beloved flee from idolatry, run away from it. Once you are saved, it's not as if idolatry is not an issue in your life or in your heart anymore. You must run. You must flee. It's something that will always be an issue. Maybe it is an actual statue, which in context, Paul will begin talking about food that has been sacrificed to actual statues, actual idols. But, Paul is very helpful, turn to Colossians chapter 3, to tell us that it's not just actual physical idols or images of a carved uh, image of carved wood or of stone or of gold. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul begins by saying, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, this is verse 1, keep on continually seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth, because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, because of all that he's just said, because you have been um, crucified with Christ, you have died with him and your life is now hidden in Christ and you have been raised with him to newness of life and you will be revealed with him in glory. Because of all of those truths, verse 5, consider the members of your earthly body As dead. So he's speaking to believers and he says, You're still going to struggle with this. Your earthly body will still have these passions and cravings. And what does he say that they are? Consider your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Some of your Bibles might say, Which is idolatry? And that is the preferred translation of that verse. Greed, which is idolatry. It is equal to idolatry. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, idolatry is worshiping a a golden image or a carved image. Absolutely. But it's so much more than that. Even our greedy hearts, immoral hearts, impure hearts, the things that we covet and desire amounts to idolatry. It is idolatry. And then turn to 1 John chapter 5. First John, chapter five. The disciple whom Jesus loved concludes his first letter, which has been all about how to know that you are genuinely saved tests that prove you are truly saved. And in first John, chapter five, verse 21, he ends his entire letter, not with grace be with you, not with greet all the brothers, No, he ends with, little children, guard yourselves or keep yourselves from idols. Why is that? Because idolatry is one of the biggest issues that you and I will face in our Christian life. Idolatry is as great a problem today in America, in Northridge, even in this church as it was in the time of John, in the time of Paul. Oz Guinness, in his amazing book, No God But God, says this. In both the Old and New Testaments, idolatry is clearly the supreme threat to faith because it grows from the deepest desires and motivations of the human heart. And thus, it is a barrier to repentance, to lordship, and the first and greatest commandment to love the Lord our God and tolerate no third party or rival allegiance in our hearts. The reality is we can worship anything. We can worship anything. We can worship nature. We can worship false gods. We can deify abstract concepts or forces. We can take any human desire and give it precedence over God's word and God's will, which is idolatry. John MacArthur says, idolatry does not begin with a sculptor's hammer. It begins in the mind. As we look in the coming weeks at this issue of idolatry, we're going to see that our hearts are always prone to wander. Our hearts are always seeking to be satisfied. And when we don't find our satisfaction in God alone, we will turn to other things, other people to satisfy us. So what is idolatry? Let me read a couple of quotes from some people who tried to define idolatry and tried to give us helpful definitions For what it is. First, Ken Sandy says it this way An idol is not simply a statue of wood, stone, or metal. It is anything we love and pursue in place of God. So his definition is an idol is anything that we love or pursue in the place of God. It can also be referred to as a false God or a functional God. In biblical terms, an idol is something other than God that we set our hearts on, that motivates us, that masters or rules us, or that we serve. Richard Keyes, again, giving a definition for idolatry, says it this way. An idol is something within creation that is inflated to function as God. So his definition would be something that you take inside of creation that is created, uh, inflated to function as God. He goes on to say all sorts of things are potential idols depending only on our attitudes and actions toward them. Idolatry may not involve explicit denials of God's existence and character. That's crucial. Sometimes we think, oh, I'm not an idolater because I love God. I know God exists and I trust in him. Idolatry may not involve explicit denials of God's existence or character. He says it may well come in the form of an overattachment to something that is in itself perfectly good. An idol can be a physical object, a property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero, anything that can substitute for God. And finally, John Calvin says the evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want but that we want it too much. That's why we talked last week about not only the sin that so easily entangles us, but encumbrances, good things that have become supreme God things, and therefore they are bad things. So John Calvin would say an idol is anything that we want too much. Now, we're going to get into how we know it's too much. We'll get into that. We can sum it all up by saying this. Idolatry is, let me give you a couple definitions. Placing our affections and adoration on anything other than God alone. Affections, adoration on anything other than God alone. Or, idolatry is worshipping anything other than God alone. Or, idolatry is loving, trusting, and obeying anything more than God. We'll get into that definition in a little bit. Or, idolatry is trying to find your satisfaction in anything other than God alone. But the overarching theme is that you take God and and you have idolatry. You take God and and you have idolatry. So those are some definitions for idolatry and they will be more concrete as we go through this series together. Number two, why do we worship other gods? Why do we worship other gods? This really deserves a sermon of its own. Uh, in fact, I have four pages of notes. If you really don't believe what I'm about to tell you, I have four pages of notes that are all Scripture references that tell us this truth. So I, I figured I can't go into all these verses. Um, so you'll, you'll have to take the Bible's word for it as said through this one sentence. But I promise you, if you have questions about this sentence, I have four very long, very tiny, detailed pages of Bible references to prove this fact. And that is this the end for which God created the world is His own glory. We have to start to figure out why we are idolaters at heart. We have to start with this first presupposition that the Bible clearly states. Let me give you just a couple Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11. God says this It is for my name's sake that I defer my anger. It is for the sake of my praise that I restrain it for you, that I might not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own name and for my own sake. I do it because how should my name be profaned among the nations for my glory? I will not give to another. Think of Ephesians chapter one. Why did God save us to the praise of the glory of his grace? God does everything that he does for his own glory or even Jeremiah 13, verse 11. God says, I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise and my glory. So the reason why God does everything that he does is for his own glory. And then he creates us. What is our purpose in life? He created us for his glory, and so our main purpose, the chief end of man, is to glorify God. That's the reason why we were created. That's the reason we were designed and made, is to glorify God. And because of that, since we were made to glorify God, we have all been hardwired. This would be presupposition number three. We've all been hardwired to be worshipers. We were all made as worshipers. If God designed everything in the world that he designed for his glory, and then he made us to glorify him or to worship him or adore him or exalt his name, then he placed inside of us a heart, a soul that worships every second of every day. We were made by God to be worshipers. That's why we were made. Now, we need to know that because the reality is every second of every day we are worshiping something. That's why idolatry can't exist, because there are other things that we can worship other than God. And since we are always worshiping something, sometimes it's God. Sometimes it's other things that God has created. So we must understand If we're going to answer this question of why do we worship other gods, I'm I'm going to give you kind of five main reasons why we worship other gods. And main reason number one is we were created to be worshipers. That's why we were made. There is never a moment in your life when you are not worshiping, not praising or exalting or trusting or obeying something. Ultimately, you are either worshiping God or yourself, ultimately. And we're going to talk about this later in our series again. Think of Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, where the prophets of Baal are going up against God. And Elijah says, where's your God? Who are you going to worship? Are you going to worship your God, or are you going to worship the one true God? I feel like every day we live on Mount Carmel. Are you going to worship God, or are you going to worship whatever God you want to make? Or think about the garden Are you going to do what God tells you to do? Think about Adam and Eve forced to make a choice. Are you going to obey God or are you going to do what you want to do? There's a passage that I would love to go to. We don't have enough time to do any of what I really, really want to do. So we'll do it later. Don't worry. But Luke chapter nine, just write it down for now. Luke chapter nine, verses 57 through 62, an amazing passage where Jesus is calling people to follow him. And there are three people in that passage. One says, I'll follow you. And Jesus says, yeah, right. And you remember his response is, yeah, the foxes have holes. Um, the birds of the air have nests. There are all the animals around you have areas to sleep, but the son of man has no place to rest his head. If you want to follow me, you need to throw away the idol and your allegiance to comfort, ease, safety, security. Do you really want to follow me if you have no home? the Bible says the guy goes away. And then there's a man who says, I will follow you, Jesus. And Jesus says, okay. And the man says, first, before I follow you, let me go bury my father. There's a lot of speculation as to what that means. I think ultimately what it means is, let me go finish all of the preparations for the burial, finish the funeral, receive the inheritance, and then I'll go with you. And Jesus says, no, you can't do that. You're wanting money over me, and you can't do that. It's either me, or you can't follow me. If you want to pursue anything else other than me or alongside of me, you can't. I mean, think of this this man. It sounds like a harsh statement that Jesus says. No, no, no. Can't bear your father. Um, we know that the father was already dead, and. Jesus says, don't wait to receive your inheritance. Think of this man, all of his reasons why. No, no, we can have the inheritance and we'll bring it along to support and fund the mission. And Jesus says, no, you have an idol of greed, an idol of desiring money more than you desire me. So no, no, you can't follow me. And then another person says, I will follow you. And Jesus says, after putting your hand to the plow, if you look back, you're not worthy of following me. So maybe there are things that you left behind that become your idols, things that you love and desire that become your idols. Whatever it is, ultimately, we either worship God or we worship ourselves. But we worship other idols. We worship other gods, number one, because we were created to be worshipers. That's what we are designed to do. And time an infinite soul tries to find satisfaction in finite things, it will always be let down. Because finite things cannot satisfy an infinite soul. Number two, idolatry has appeals to it. And one of the biggest appeals, one of the biggest reasons why we commit idolatry is because we have self centered gratification that we desire. This is a way to get things that we want becoming an idolater is a way to get what we want. God tells us to do something. We don't want to do that. We want to do something else. So we become idolaters and worship the other thing that God told us we're not allowed to do. Again, think of the Garden of Eden. The reason why Adam and Eve ate is because the fruit was desirable to them. They wanted that over the command that God had given to them. And because of that, they became idolaters in that moment, worshiping self instead of God. A third reason why we run to idols, and I think this is a crucial reason why we are idolaters at heart. A third reason is we desire self-rule. We desire self-rule. David Wells says it this way, Why do people choose a substitute for God himself? Perhaps the most important reason is that it obviates or does away with accountability to God. We can meet idols on their own terms because they are our own creations. They are safe, predictable, and controllable. They are, in Jeremiah's colorful language, a scarecrow in a cucumber field. They are portable and completely under the user's control. People who remain in the center of their lives and loyalties need only face themselves. Why do we worship other gods other than God himself? Because now we can control those other gods. We can rule ourselves. We don't want to have God ruling over us so we can rule ourselves. Or as one writer says, idolaters are the autonomous architects of their own future. We find safety and security in being able to control what we would worship. Number four, a fourth reason why We pursue idols other than God is simply that we are acting out our personal rebellion against God. We act out our personal rebellion against God. This is in Romans chapter 1. You can write down verses 18 through 23. Though it is clear that God exists, people would make their own gods in the shape of all living creatures, and they worship those things rather than the Creator, and they do not give the Creator thanks. Oz Guinness in the book, again, No God But God, says idols are what we make out of the evidence for God within ourselves and in the world if we do not want to face the face of God himself in his majesty and holiness. So we make gods out of other things because we are rebelling against God and we don't want him to rule over us. And fifthly and finally, one of the reasons why we are idolaters is because of the powerful influence of others around us. The powerful influence of others around us. Every commercial that is shown on television is a commercial to bow down to another different God. It could be the God of Gillette and shave with this razor and you can become the most beautiful man in human history. It could be any form of, of a God. Think about Solomon. Solomon. The wisest man who ever lived, other than Jesus Christ himself, and Solomon, in his utter wisdom, ends up being swayed by all of his wives to worship all other foreign gods. Even though he was a godly man who was wise, given his wisdom by God himself, he still is swayed by those around him. And hopefully we'll see as we go into this series the powerful, inf- powerful influence that people have around us. So why do we worship other gods? Why are we idolaters? Why do we do these things? Number one, we were made to be worshipers. We were made as worshipers. We're always worshiping. Number two, we desire self-gratification, and that's one way to get it. Number three, we desire self-rule. And if we take God out of the picture, we can be our own gods. Number four, we are personally rebelling against God. And number five, we are easily influenced by those around us. That brings us to number three. So we have a little bit of a definition of what idolatry looks like. We know why, some motivations as to why we are idolaters. And thirdly, what happens when we worship other gods? What's the product? What's the outcome of our idolatry? We're still here, right? We're alive. We're breathing. We've got it made. So maybe our idolatry is not that bad. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul clearly tells us what the end of idolatry is. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So, eternally, what is the outcome of a habitual idolater? The outcome is hell. The outcome of someone who is characterized by idolatry is that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if that's not bad enough, let's pull it back into the temporal realm. Okay, We know what the outcome is eternally, but temporally, what happens when we commit idolatry? What happens? Can I give you one word to describe what happens in a a physical, temporal realm of an idolater? The outcome of idolatry is despair. The outcome of idolatry is despair. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 15, Solomon said, The way of the transgressor is hard, and I would say the life of the idolater is one of despair. There's a difference in the world between sorrow and despair. Sorrow is pain for which there are sources of consolation. Sorrow comes from losing one good thing among other good things, so that if you experience other good things, you'll be able to enjoy them and find freedom from your sorrow. Despair, however, is unable to be consoled because it is losing that ultimate thing that is your source of meaning, your so- source of hope, and there are no other alternatives to turn to. It completely breaks your spirit. What's the source of despair? Despair. It comes from taking some incomplete joy in this world and building your entire life on it. That's another definition for idolatry. Taking an incomplete joy in this world and building your entire life on it. Building your entire life on something that is fleeting, that is passing, that was never meant to ultimately satisfy. There are good gifts that God has given to us to enjoy, like friends, family, fellowship together as a body. Uh, Even money or things like that, there are many things that God has given to us to enjoy. But if we turn that good thing into a God thing, into the ultimate thing, we will lose that good thing one day and we will have nothing but despair ahead of us. Tim Keller says it like this. Each culture has its shrines whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power and money and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating orders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. And the reality is we've all seen the end, the the sad end to people that bank their hope and their trust on money, and then the stock market crashes and you have billionaires who lose it all and end up committing suicide. Finite things were never given by God to satisfy us ultimately, eternally. They never were. So if we see this time and time again, if we see how devastation and despair comes from losing something we turn into an idol, why do we buy into idolatry time and time again? Why have we not pulled ourselves out of the system and said, I'm done with that. I'm only going to pursue Jesus Christ. I'm only going to be worshiping him and nothing else. Why do we continue to fall for this? The answer is, as John Calvin says, because our human hearts are idol factories. They are idol factories He says it like this. The human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is, from his mother's womb, an expert in inventing idols. I love that. Our human hearts are consistently, constantly producing idols. Other things that we can enjoy, that we can worship, that we can find our satisfaction in. And again, this does not mean that it's always a bad thing. This can be a good thing that we turn to. That we seek to find comfort and security and safety and hope and joy in other than God, ultimately. In the Lord of the Rings, the ring of power has an amazing example of idolatry for us. The ring takes the heart's greatest desires and then magnifies them to an idolatrous proportion. Even good characters in the book that get a hold of the ring want to do good things with the ring, with the power that they've been given. They want to liberate slaves. They want to preserve people's lands. They want to visit wrongdoers with just punishment. These are all good objectives, but the ring makes them willing to do anything to achieve those objectives. And now the objective becomes a god in their lives, turns a good thing into an absolute That overturns every other allegiance or value. The wearer of the ring, as you guys know, with Smeagol, becomes increasingly enslaved and addicted to it. For an idol is something that we cannot live without. What can be an idol for us? As specific as I can make it, anything. (laughs) Anything can be an idol, and everything has been an idol. Anything can be and everything has been. An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. So let me give you some specifics that might help. Family can be an idol. Children, career, money, achievements, saving face in front of your friends, social standings, romantic relationships, peer approval, competence, skill, Security, comfortable circumstances, beauty, brains, even success in Christian ministry can become an idol. An idol is anything that we love, trust, or obey. Can you write those three words down? Because we're going to see as we look at specific idols. Next week, we're going to look at the idol of money and greed. The following week, we'll look at the idol of love. Um, we're going we're to see different idols as, as demonstrated in Scripture for us. And as we look at each specific idol, you will see that the people who are becoming these idolaters are loving, trusting, and obeying the idols that they set up. An idol is anything we love, trust, and obey. When the Bible speaks of idols, it always speaks of those three things. Worshiping them through loving, trusting, and obeying them. But what happens Again, the question we're asking in point number three is what happens when we become idolaters? What is the outcome? The outcome is despair. The outcome is that you will never ultimately be satisfied. That thing that you are desiring to satisfy you will let you down. I think I gave an example of this a couple of weeks ago with a, a woman who said, All I'm really looking for in a man is, is someone who can make my life happy. I just thought that that poor husband's going to be set up for failure, because his job was not designed by God to make his wife happy and to give her happiness and bring her happiness for the rest of her days. It's not his God-given role or responsibility. And if she establishes him as an idol in her life, seeking to be satisfied by him and him alone, she will be let down. She will be. In fact, what usually happens with the idols that we trust and love and obey? is the very thing that we are pursuing in idolatry is the very thing that we lose. And I want, to, I want to clearly say this because this has been very helpful in my fight against idolatry. The very thing that we're trying to get by worshiping that thing, we end up losing. Let me give you three examples. First, you have an army officer. All he wants is physical and military discipline, above all things in his troops, And because that's what he wants, that becomes his idol. I want military discipline. I want physical discipline. He ends up destroying the morale of his troops. So much so that in battle, there's a breakdown in communication. The troops become undisciplined, fractured, and they take on huge casualties. So the very thing he wanted, discipline, he lost because he was fighting so hard to get it. Or think of a woman desperately desires to escape poverty. She grew up as a child in a home that was paycheck to paycheck and sometimes not even that. All she wants is financial security. She wants that above all things. So she ends up marrying a millionaire that she doesn't truly love simply because he's rich. In doing this, she passes over several other amazing godly men because they are poor and ultimately what she wants is to be rich. But because she is married to a man that she doesn't love or respect and who doesn't respect or love her, they end up getting a divorce. She ends up becoming single again. And now she lives in a tiny apartment all alone with no job, no friends, and all of the poverty that she was bent on escaping. The very thing that she wanted, that she fought so hard to get, is the reason why she lost that. Or think of professional sports. Some players in their quest to be the best, to be in the Hall of Fame, to have all of the records, take steroids. And what happens when they're found out? They can't go into the Hall of Fame. They lose all of their records, and nobody likes them anymore. The very thing that they're trying to get, that they will now do anything to get, they lose. And brothers and sisters, that's what happens to every idol that we pursue. Every idol does that. Every idol is a mean game. It's a mean trick because it says, oh, pursue me, love me, worship me, trust me. And when we finally say, yes, I will trust you and pursue you with abandon, it says, "Ha, got you. Despair, devastation, depression. You don't get what you want and it lies And notice, in each case, of those three examples, the army officer, the woman, and the professional athlete, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. None of those things are bad. But they become bad. They become idols when they are turned into a supreme thing that overrides all competing affections. So what happens when we worship other lesser gods? We place our hope in those gods to satisfy us, and they don't. We place our hope in them to save us, and they can't. Instead of ultimate satisfaction, idolaters are ultimately depressed. Instead of ultimate life and living it to the fullest, idolaters find ultimate death. They find the second death and eternal separation from God. And since we are all worshipers, and our hearts are all idol factories, we have to be vigilant To ask the question, what do we desire that could become a competing affection, competing allegiance with the one true God? What is your greatest ongoing desire? What is it that you want more than anything? What is it that you would give up anything to have? What is it that once you have that thing, you would do anything to keep? People ask, how do I know when a desire has become idolatrous? R.L. Dabney was a theologian in the time of the Civil War. So I'm going to read a a section from a a book that he wrote. And this gets a little wordy, but we'll go through it. I think he's helpful to give us the answer. How do we know when a desire has become idolatrous? How can we tell? How can we tell? We love good things. I'm not pursuing bad things. I'm pursuing good things. But how can I tell if that desire has become idolatrous? a bad thing. He says this, the most current breach of the first commandment in nominally Christian communities is doubtless the sin of inordinate affections, meaning out of control affections and desires. Scripture brands these as idolatry or the worship of something other than the true God, especially in the case of covetousness, And parity of reasoning extends the teaching to all other inordinate desires. So any out-of-control desires. So he's saying those are idolatrous desires. How do we know when our desires have become out of control? How do we know that? We can see formal idolatry as that of the Hindu, a very foolish and flagrant thing. But we forgive the spiritual idolatry of passions. So again, he's saying idols are... Um, anything that we desire with So How do we know one desires too much? God classes them together in order to show us the enormity of the latter. So God classes worshiping an image, a statue, along with greed and covetousness to show us that it is equally that bad, that wicked, that evil. So what then is it that constitutes the having of God for our God? Okay, what constitutes God being our God alone? What constitutes loving him with no other loves and affections? What is it? What is it to obey the first commandment? What is it to worship him above all other things? He says this. It includes loving him stronger than all other affections, trusting him as our highest portion and source of happiness, obeying and serving him supremely, worshiping him as he requires, Now that thing to which we render these regards and services is our God. So those are the things, loving him stronger than other affections, trusting him, having our highest portion and source of happiness in him, obeying and serving him supremely, worshiping him as he requires. And whatever we render those things to is our God, whether it be gold, fame, power, pleasure or friends. The reality is, do you love what you want more than anything else? Are you willing to disobey God to get that one thing that you love? Is that desire what you believe will bring you the greatest happiness? We need to search our hearts. We need to search our hearts. And this is my prayer over the next couple of weeks. Again, just a brief introduction to this issue. And then we'll dive in next week with the, the idol of, of money, of greed, of greed. Um, and I hope that I hope that you will come with a, a teachable, humble heart, knowing that maybe, maybe money isn't the biggest issue for you. Maybe you're content, and you feel I don't really have the problem of idolatry, of greed, of money. But can I just plead with you to stay humble, because everything in this world can become an idol, everything can. And I believe that money, especially in our amazingly prosperous society becomes an issue. And all the things that come with it, security and comfort, we need to search our hearts. And G. Campbell Morgan says it better than I can. Let men take five minutes to shut out everything except the great fact that when they stand alone with God, some are terribly afraid even to spend as much time as that with their own thoughts. But if they will... If they dare, let them ask, as they stand in the light of the first commandment, What is my God? To what is my life devoted? If the answer indicates anything that puts God into the background, then in the name of heaven and of their own safety, let them break down every idol and let the God who will be, who is, and who was be their God. That's what we need. We need to take five minutes to shut everything out except the fact that we are standing before God alone. And then we need to ask and dare to ask the question in light of the first commandment. What is our God? What is our life devoted to? What do we worship? What do we love? What do we trust? What do we obey? We are all by nature idolaters. Where's the hope? Where do we go from here? I think I left you in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 with the terrible reality that anyone who is characterized by idolatry will not enter the kingdom. But here's the hope, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. How can we possibly hope to destroy and tear down all of the idols in our, in our lives? How can we possibly hope to do that? It's because God washes us. God sanctifies us. God justifies us. Notice what Paul says. It's not you washed yourselves, you sanctified yourselves, and you justified yourselves. No, no. You were passive. You didn't do anything. God washed you. God sanctifies you. God justifies you. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36 verse 25. This this alone is our hope. God says, Then, I will sprinkle clean water. This is Ezekiel 36:25. I will sprinkle clean water. What did Paul say? You were washed. Such were some of you, habitual idolaters, characterized by idolatry, enslaved to various passions and lusts. But you were washed. What does God say? I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will wash you. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your what? Idols. I will cleanse you from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. So he makes us clean. He removes all of our filthiness. He removes all of our idols. He justifies us and declares us right. And then he sanctifies us by giving us a new heart, putting a new spirit within us. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And just in case you are afraid that, wait, God will do that to me at one time and leave me alone, he says, no, 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 I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. I'm going to do it all for you. I'm going to wash you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to justify you. I'm going to sanctify you. I'm not going to leave you to your own devices. I'm going to give you my spirit so that you will walk in my ways. You will walk in my commandments. You will be careful to observe my ordinances. So what do we need to do? We need to admit that we are all idolaters. We need to admit that we consistently every day turn to lesser gods to satisfy. We need to admit the the evil of that. The imagery that god uses in the old testament so often is that of adultery that we are playing the harlot that we are going after other gods even though we are married to our loving husband we are going after other lovers we need to admit that and we need to run to the cross we need to let jesus be our greatest idol our only idol we love trust and obey him and him alone and we need to remain teachable. And over the next couple of weeks, as we go through specific pointed idols, I pray that we can do the work of uprooting the roots of the weeds of our idolatry that maybe have grown a little, maybe have grown so much so that now we say, oh, that's a beautiful plant. I'm taking care of it now. I water it. Maybe God's word in his grace will speak to our hearts over the course of this series and saying, no, 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 that's a weed. Let's remove it. Father, we thank you for your grace. The only reason that we have to even be here, we as idolaters can be here singing, can be here sitting under the word of God with a love for him. The only way we can do that is because of what has happened in Ezekiel, that you gave us that new heart, that you washed us, that you have regenerated us, that you have justified us, that you have sanctified us. And so, God, we pray, we confess all of those competing allegiances, we confess those competing affections, those things that we love, that we are unfaithful, we are adulterous, we turn after other lovers when you and you alone satisfy in every way. God, teach us our idols, the things that we coddle, the things that we cling to, the things that we love. Teach us even now as we stand before you and face you, as G. Campbell Morgan said, for just five minutes. May we ask the question, what is it that we are truly living for? What is our greatest devotion? Why are we taking breath? And God, may this be the prayer of our heart that all other affections would fade away, whether it's greed, whether it's love, family, whatever it might be. And may you and you alone be our vision this day. Be thou.